Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and now we're going to go straight to our first guest, a Farr cast fan favorite, Jim Murio. We get to talk to Jim uh, about monthly only because he's so kind. Managing director at TJM Sec Institutional Services in Chicago. You see him on the floor of the Chicago Exchange, uh, and he is a regular on CNBC. When you see Jim on CNBC, uh, take it off a of mute. Listen to what he says. Uh, this is one of the wise men out there in my book, ladies and gentlemen. Morning, Jim. Welcome. Morning. Thank you, Michael. Uh, interesting markets here for the past. <laughs> that's, your, that's your adjective, interesting? <laughs> that's what I'm going I, with. I've been up all night, my hands are shaking, and you call it interesting? Okay, let's go with that. Let's, I mean, you know, uh, well, go ahead. Let's go with your characterization. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, you get a 10-year treasury uh, for guys like us uh, under 1%. Uh, it's, tough. it's tough to stay calm when you see that. What do you make of all these markets, Jim? Well, first of all, you, you mentioned the tenure, and we got to remember, it's obvious what we're seeing with the potential economic impact of the coronavirus, but there's another element that people aren't talking about it that's still a driver of rates just in this constant progression towards low, and that's the world central banks, particularly the, um, the uh, ECB and the BOJ have been, you know, had negative rates for a long time. Just a couple of days ago, 23% of the world's sovereign debt traded at negative yield. So that was before coronavirus really kicked in. So now this to think we're going down to zero in the tenure, I don't think is a ridiculous notion any longer. Um, how, you know, how about it, us going negative, Jim? Could we go negative? Sure. I don't think that's a ridiculous notion either. I mean, we we know that the it, if we were talking about this a couple of years ago, we would have thought that that was the most ludicrous suggestion on the planet. And now all of a sudden we've seen it played out many, many times. I don't think we're going to go negative, uh, but I, I do think uh, I do think we're going lower still. Jim, if we are some fraction of 1% on a 10-year treasury, and uh, so just some basis points on a 10-year treasury, same thing, and of course even lower on a two-year and five-year and so forth, uh, wh what does that tell, what, what is the bond market telling us about its expectations for growth, for demand of money, and for future economic growth? I think what it's really telling us most of all is that the world central banks, and the Fed's obviously at the forefront of that, is really panicked about possible economic ramifications of this situation. But even before that, they're, they, they are, they're always worried when asset prices fall, there's still a lot of problems globally. And central banks are using what tools they feel they have to fix it, and they're driving rates down and down. And they're just, we're, you know, everybody's complaining about, oh, the Fed, 50-point basis uh, won't, won't stop this at all. Well, okay, there's a couple different things. This is really what monetary policy is supposed to be used for when you see these exogenous um, factors that might throw a real wrench into the economy. The problem that, that I have and that most people, I think, if they articulated it better, would be the Fed's going to throw 50 basis points at this, but then they're not going to take it back in June if this thing has blown over and things are resembling normalcy. And that's the problem I have with the Fed, and that's, that's why I've been somewhat bullish, you know, risk assets, well, after the big 16% plunge. Right. So uh, when, when I see this then, uh, that, this, this tells me, I mean, this, this tells me the bond market is, is saying the U.S. Uh, US is going to go into recession. I mean, y you don't see this. I can't think of any other message from this. I, I suppose there is an argument that we are reacting and following the rest of the world markets down, and, and I kind of get that, but uh, if there's a demand for money here, if there's growth, uh, your rates are higher for, if there's a demand for money, and, and, and there's, sure. there's not, right? Sure. Well, you know, we've talked for years and years about the predictive power of the yield curve, and how it's, you know, when it tells a recession, it's a pretty good indicator. I will say that some of that predictive power has been lessened because the yield curve, kind of a normal yield curve, is flatter now than it was 25, 30 years ago. But right. that being said, this could obviously be a big deal and lock up supply chain uh, things in a lot of industries. 
it could you know, scare people even in, in sort of retail industries and keep people home, and it could easily, easily throw us into a recession. I'm not sure that it's going to, but for the, for the bond market to be telling us that that's a distinct possibility, I think is perfectly reasonable. Stocks went, of course, way down last week, went way up on, uh, you know, went way up right after that. Uh, we, we had that 1,300-point uh, run. We were up, actually, another three couple of 300 points when the Fed cut, uh, and then we were down 700 and some points yesterday. Futures are up 700 points this morning. What's an investor to do, Jim, with all of this volatility? Well, there's only like I can tell you what what me as the invest wearing the investor hat would do, and that's you know periodically, and we talked about this at the turn of the year was um, was you know rebalance to a level of risk that you're comfortable with. These are the kind of normal things. Um, to put this in perspective, this move coming it, it came in at an all time high. It was a 16 percent move up. Right. In 2009, when H1N1 came, H1N1 killed 17,000 people in this country. One out of six people in this country had it. Um, it. It was, you know, and obviously this could be a bigger deal, but it certainly isn't yet. But the stock market didn't even ripple any of that because we had bigger fish to fry in the stock market. We, it was 2009. We were at the depth of a recession. The stock market had just been clobbered over the previous couple of years. But now when something like this comes at an all-time high, when people forget that risk exists and complacency is everywhere, like it was, then something like that, you know, it's kind of a, a risk reminder gut punch, and all of a sudden, oh, wow, I have too many stocks, and that's what exacerbates the move. So I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm just saying that when it comes at an all-time high and it pushes us in a certain direction, then selling begets selling, and it's no longer really as much about the coronavirus than it is about you know, reassessing risk, which is something that's welcome, something that should be done. Uh, so, Jim, let's take a look at a couple of other things because I want to look at uh, 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 I want to talk about the duration of this particular period of volatility and how long this let's call it the coronavirus uh, downturn can last. Uh, I want to talk about the notion, um, uh, too, of uh, buying the dips. And then uh, I want to get to earnings growth for the S&P for 2020. So let's let's look at duration for the for the beginning here seems to me that you know investors have been so uh, conditioned to be short term and buy dips and 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 not even probably buy tops too you know in the past few years we haven't seen a prolonged downturn uh, in in a generation of of folks of investors on wall street you and i have of course but uh, not not the other young people how long can this last how does this play out how how do you how do you think about this and get your head around it as an investor so it doesn't beat you up if it does last a long time? Do you think it'll last well, a long well, time? The, the anatomy of a of a correction, as you know, that it can take on a couple of different forms. Now, you know, short term correction. I hear you know a lot of people anecdotally saying to me, "Yeah, the market goes up and down. I'm not changing anything. I'm in for the long haul." So the question becomes: Is how long? Of poor performance and trending downward, would it take for those people to be all like, "Wow, you know, this is this is real. This is something that's going to cause me to sell stocks." And that's the that's how you really mark the absolute end of a correction is when the what I, I don't mean to the, anything derogatory by calling them like the weekend, but like the 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 less informed money, the more longer term money when they start getting out. I don't think this is going to be one of those things. I think the the a decent economic backdrop. I mean, yes, could, could this coronavirus stop that? Yes, but only probably temporarily. We do have good policies in place. There's probably another tax cut coming. And at the end of the day, we have central banks just throwing, throwing money at the problem. So the question is, where is that money going to end up? I say it's going to end up in U.S. stocks. So I think if, if the market goes back above 3,100 today and looks like it's going to settle up there, I think there's a chance. I think there's a 60% chance that the whole, the worst of it is over. But if it's not, you know, then we have to reevaluate. And then, you know, if it goes on a couple more weeks, that's when we have to worry about it lasting a few weeks beyond that. Obviously. Does that make any sense? Of course it makes sense. You always make sense. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I agree with you, but you make absolute sense. <laughs> uh, cool. Berugian and I, uh, I'll, I'll just, you know, grab him and drag him under the bus <laughs> with me as I, as I go. But uh, – I'm still, you know, I got a, I got a picture, a photograph yesterday from one of our clients and uh, uh, who got on a plane in Frankfurt, Germany, a, a 777 coming back to 
uh, JFK, there were 15 people on the flight. Uh, given the oh, flight well. cancellations, uh, given the airlines that aren't flying, given the conferences that are being canceled, uh, and so forth, I think that the growth uh, economic impact is going to still show up in the numbers over the next couple of months. I think a shutdown could become broader in the U.S. And I've got other friends who are judging China not by China's reports, and I love this, Jim. They're not judging China by what China is saying in terms of its recovery. They're looking at air quality in China, in central China, and they're looking at the satellite heat map photos. And the, and the factories are not showing heat. And the air quality in China has improved dramatically. Air China, for the first time in years and years, is pretty damn good in China because the factories are still closed. They have to open, and those ships have to start moving out of the port. Somebody's got, got to start loading and unloading those containers again. Uh, and that. So we need to see that start happening. Until I see that activity resume, I'm worried about the impact that continues to show up in our economic data. And so I think this could take a much longer time, and I think that these head fakes from the markets are going to wear investors, could possibly wear investors down. I'm, I, I think we've got to kind of dig in for the long haul here of, of, of a more negative environment, but what do I know? I'm hoping Urio's right. No, uh, no I, I think that what everything you're saying is valid, but I do think you're ignoring a couple of the counterarguments. And one of which is, I've, you've talked to three people in the last week who are talking about being in the midst of a refinance, refinancing their loans. Um, I think that the fact that the tenure has gone down below uh, 1% make, you know, makes people more inclined to push their way out the risk curve a little bit, too. And, and, of course, there's overwhelmingly more businesses that are affected negatively. But there are certainly some that are, going to be, that are affected positively, too, with people doing disaster prep. And I know that's probably just a blip but it belongs on the, pos the economic positive side of the ledger as well. So, so, yeah, there are those negatives. The question only becomes, is a time where is it going to be the Fed against the fundamentals? And I think that that war will rage on. And you and I are saying similar things. We're just picking maybe different winners. Well, I said the Fed could prop up asset prices. You said maybe not in the short term. Well, it, we, we, I mean, you know, we're going we're, we're gonna to watch. Uh, I heard, and, and I heard this, ladies and gentlemen, I have not verified this, so uh, take it with, with that bit of caution. It was a pretty good source who told me, uh, I believe he told me he was on the, uh, on the board of Freddie Mac or an uh, advisory board to Freddie Mac. They have said uh, they're not going below 3% or 3 point something on their mortgage rates at Freddie until they figure out how this gets shaken out. So uh, the mortgage rates are not, the banks are not rushing down. We haven't seen a huge drop here uh, in those rates following us down to this one or sub 1% tenure. If we do, I think we will see a huge round of refis that will strengthen the consumer if the consumer indeed has the confidence to go ahead and refi, to leave the house and refi. But that will be a matter of time. Those refis could, you know, there could be, there could be a delay. Okay. Jim, uh, we're out of time, and I still want to get to earnings growth. We saw S&P earnings uh, grow last year 1.5%. With all of this economic pressure and coronavirus pressure and the airlines and cars that aren't selling and all of this other stuff, where do you think we have earnings growth for uh, 2020? And what sort of a number do you think, and how will that affect stock prices throughout the balance oh. of the year? I think it it could be it could appear mildly disastrous in certain sectors, particularly and you mentioned airlines, but anything that's involved with the China supply chain, semiconductors, things like that. I think well, in tourism as well. I mean, throughout the United well, States absolutely. and anywhere else. I mean, not not happening, right? There's no question about it, and those things could look disastrous. Yeah. And I think that if you are going to be focused on those things, you're going to be a very depressed investor and may take money out. And that's I think one of the points. I was trying to make is that you, you have to believe in June, if this thing's all been kind of um, pushed behind us and the blue skies are ahead, not just uh, literally, but figuratively as well, and you know, there's still all this money sloshing around, I believe an investor is going to have to say, yes, earnings could be crappy. And, but we have to remember that snapbacks can be big once, once everything gets back online. So, yeah, I mean, to your point, Sure. If that's gonna if that's gonna be the thing that drives you, and Larry always you know says earnings are the mother mother milk of the stock market, that's fine. If you're gonna be focused on that in the short term, then it's gonna be a relatively bleak picture. 
Um, but if you can look beyond it, then not so much. You know, if you can look beyond it, ladies and gentlemen, not so much. Probably the wisest thing you're going to hear for a long time from anybody in the media. Uh, longer term, ladies and gentlemen, when I look at my portfolio and I think five to 10 years from now, do I still want to own Microsoft and J.P. Morgan and Pepsi-Cola and, you know, uh, Johnson & Johnson? Yes, I do. I'm not rushing. I'm not selling those things. You don't trade those things. You don't. The, the, this is my core portfolio. Uh, it's not a recommendation to buy or sell securities, so don't go out and do that or think I'm recommending stocks, please. That's for my compliance person. Uh, anyway, listen to Urio. Uh, keep your head about you, uh, and uh, uh, we will get through this together. Jim Urio uh, is from the uh, Chicago uh, Exchange and one of the brightest guys we get to talk to on the forecast. Hey, Jim, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. See ya. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back uh, with the forecast. We're going to talk to the chief economist from Wells Fargo. Dr. Jay Bryson has been with the Federal Reserve Bank and came out last week with a report that said the federal funds rate would be cut by 100 basis points in 2020. And everybody said, oh, we can't believe it. Couldn't happen and they cut 50 basis points two days later. What does Bryson know, and what can we learn for all of our listeners on the Farcast when we come back? Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. I'm Harry Jennings, producer for the show. We love bringing you the show every week and bringing you a deeper look at what moves the economic and investing landscape. We also produce a daily podcast, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Each morning the U.S. markets are open, we bring you just the numbers that you need. Markets, headlines, commodities, and futures, all in the time it takes to brew a cup of coffee. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform and get a head start on the markets every day. And now, back to Michael Farr and The Farcast. Welcome back to The Farcast. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us. Terrific Jim Murio insights, ladies and gentlemen, as we help you navigate a very volatile market and lots of news that we haven't seen before, and especially and above all, a 10-year Treasury yield below 1%. That's a very big deal. If you want to watch one thing's one thing in the markets, folks, you can ignore the Dow Jones going up and down or the S&P or the NASDAQ. Pay close attention to the yield on that one-year Treasury. That's giving you the long-term picture from the bond markets, which has always been considered a bit smarter than the stock markets. Volatility will be with us for a while as uh, far as opinion. Well, now, uh, as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world, we move quickly to Washington. Uh, the, Dan, the great Dan Mahaffey joining us again, our senior political uh, advisor and analyst here on the Farcast from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I am just fabulous. I have been, uh, uh, haven't been bored here for several <laughs> weeks. Um, but certainly none of us are having as good a morning as uh, Joe Biden is. Joe Biden's having a good day. Tell us yes. about Joe's day today. Well, I think I, I'm going to I think we, can we just call him Lazarus? We Biden? can call him that. I think we we had and I, I was looking back at what we said on it. And I said, Joe Biden is out barring a miracle in South Carolina. And let's say Jim Clyburn helped deliver that miracle for Joe Biden. And this turn in momentum, this is an amazing thing to see. We see a. Uh, a campaign with no field offices in some of these states, no staff, barely any money. But that South Carolina victory and the free media and the consolidation of the Amy and Buttigieg supporters to him, uh, amazing to see how this has happened. And for uh, considering that a week ago we, we had him, you know, barely, uh, you know, perhaps not even getting viability in states like Texas. Uh, he wins Texas. He wins Virginia and North Carolina when polls close. Uh, resounding momentum behind Joe Biden right now. Um, and I think one of the most amazing political stories in a generation. 
you know, I saw that happen, of course, last night, and an amazing story. I was amazed that uh, Amy Klobuchar and uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, came to his side as quickly and as timely as mm -hmm. they did. I, I will love to understand the backstory from that. I, I would, and I also imagine, too, that somewhere uh, 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 Jeb Bush, uh, Marco Rubio, and John Kasich yes. are, are this morning in the shower just muttering to themselves about the other two <laughs> dropping out in 2016. No question uh, about it. Uh, but certainly, yeah, Biden's, this is interesting. He's back, but you, to be uh, St. Joe, remember, he's got to do three miracles. He's, he's only done one. Uh, and we we've got the Catholic a, Church requires two more. Yes, and yes. he's got a, he's got a long slog ahead. This is going to be a uh, a knuckle fight with Bernie Sanders. He's got to worry about his fundraising. He's got uh, sand. You know, when you look at the money that Sanders brings in from small donors, uh, but this could go down to the wire. We could have a, a contested convention in the age of coronavirus. I don't think anyone's written that fan fiction yet. Uh, and then what you have is the, uh, you know, he's still going to have this uh, race against Trump, but it's going to be filthy. And you're going to see, uh, you know, interestingly, we already see Ron Johnson in the Senate subpoenaing the, the Burisma records or, or stuff like this. They're, the, the Republicans are going to make this as dirty as possible. It's, it's going to be a brawl that's going to be fun to watch in some ways. Let's talk about who had a really bad day yesterday and perhaps a really bad week. But top of my list for bad day and bad week would be the president. Yes. Uh, he was hoping to run against Bernie Sanders. He was hoping to make not much of coronavirus. He was hoping that the Fed would cut a half a point and bail out the stock market, and the stock market goes down, and the 10-year Treasury falls below 1%. And now he's, he's running against a moderate uh, who may actually collect the votes of all the anybody-but-Trump voters. Correct. And we also know, too, interestingly, that the data showed that um, in key states, three of four voters said that the coronavirus affected their decision. How, and and wh how did that happen? I mean, why, how, did, wh how were they affected? So we have to look at it, and the crosstabs are unclear, but we saw the, the electorate did skew older. So you didn't have that, that push of young voters that Sanders counts on. Uh, but that the coronavirus concern, I think, had the public looking for uh, stable leadership, calm leadership, experienced leadership. They, they don't want a revolution. They want someone who, who has experience. Mike Bloomberg ran very effective ads. Boy, I thought they were great the on voters, coronavirus. The voters kicked the tires on Mike Bloomberg and said, yes, this Bloomberg ad makes me really worried about coronavirus, and that's why I want Joe Biden to be president. <laughs> Congratulations, Mr. Bloomberg. <laughs> Mr. Hey, Biden you, says at, thank you. And at the end, we may thank Bloomberg, though, for, for all those commercials creating that air cover for normalcy and driving the college-educated suburban voter out to the polls. That he provided the air cover for the Biden message, but when people saw that message, they wanted the Biden brand. All right, let's, let's fast forward here. Tell me about an electoral college challenge lineup between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. With Bernie Sanders, it looked like, I mean, it, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the politics are not my bag, right? I, this is not my area of expertise. I just talked to all of these uh, uh, an, you know, analysts in Washington uh, and lobbyists. I was out with lobbyists last night uh, until 9.30, by the way, uh, and um, I still survived this morning. That's, you know, when you go out with lobbyists until 9.30 at night and we were at FIOLA and the senators are walking in and uh, saying hi to the lobbyists and uh, and, and the, the, okay, so the funny thing that happened, and this is one of those this CNBC. Sound like things. a Sanders commercial, by the way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, they are there, and and they and the the dinner prices at Fiola, holy crap! I mean, the prefix starts, and you can't order uh, a la carte. Prefix starts at one hundred and seventy-five dollars a person, and then they've got the seven course and a nine course. They've got a nine course menu. I forget how much it was, but this is not a. a change. So the lobbyists are there. The senators walk in, and the senators. One senator's chief of staff looks at me, goes, uh, "Michael, I know you." Uh, and I said, "Well, uh, I, I, we may have met, yeah." And he said, "You were in the Treasury Department." I said, "No, I wasn't in the Treasury Department." Well, you're finance somewhere in the government. <laughs> 
And I said, yes, I'm not in the government. I'm on Wall Street. You're on Wall Street. I don't know people on Wall Street, he said. <laughs> One of the lobbyists said, he's on CNBC. Oh, that's it. And with that, he turned and walked immediately away from me. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, couldn't, couldn't get away fast enough. Yeah, but th those are all the those are all the stories of why people hate Washington. <laughs> well, know, that's, 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 you know, that's that exactly that that kind of encounter and dynamic. But look, I think that you you talk about the politics of this. This is an interesting luxury that Democrats now have. If you looked at Bernie Sanders, it was a lot more about competing for the working class voter. Can you bring back the Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio Rust Belt voter as they're as they're known? Biden kind of gives you the luxury of trying out two strategies at once on Trump. You can push to get that, uh, you know, uh, six-pack Joe guy back in Scranton, Pennsylvania. At the same time, you have the suburban voters in Virginia, North Carolina, the South, uh, red sunbelt states that might the Republicans are now going to have to devote resources to if they're up against someone like Biden. Here's my question. We've seen Biden look not particularly sharp through these debates. We've seen him stumble through, I mean, we've seen him stumble verbally uh, throughout his career as vice president and before, and he makes these gaffes, though he does seem a step slower. So it, it, when, when Trump goes on the attack for low energy Joe and old man Joe and everything else, and, and as you say, it, it will be very, very ugly uh, as they go at each other. Do you think that the voter overlooks all of that and says, I'd still rather have Biden with his flaws than I would have Trump with his vitriol? I think so, and I think that's the, the, the one thing we saw resoundingly, and I, I think it's interesting to note from the, uh, from the large number of African-American voters who came out, college-educated white voters, this new coalition, they, they just kind of said, we want decency from our politicians. Uh, John Meacham described it very well last night. He said it was a vote for normalcy. You, will you change? So you had thought earlier that we would, a year from now, see Donald Trump still in the White House uh, with a Democratic uh, Senate uh, and uh, House of Representatives. Uh, any changes to that forecast at this point? That forecast, I still believe in it. I think it is narrower, though. I'm not counting Bernie Sanders out entirely. There's still quite a few uh, primaries to go, so it'll be interesting to see, can Biden now take this Super Tuesday, turn that into money and infrastructure? I think a big thing will help him if suddenly uh, a certain New York mayor said, oh, look at this 50-state campaign I just happened to build. Here's the keys to the shop. That, so if Bloomberg turns his support over to Biden. Correct. That, that would be the best case scenario. And then uh, imagine, too, where Biden gets to run his campaign of Joe Biden for president while Bloomberg is then having all these ads paid for by Mike Bloomberg on why Donald Trump shouldn't be president. If you take a look, so we've got another debate coming up on uh, March 15th, ladies and gentlemen, another debate, Democratic debate. I wish they'd quit having those things, except the last one was such great television. I, I mean, it was just fabulous TV. Awful to have to watch, but kind of like, you know, the, 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 those car derbies where they all run into each other. Uh, what do they call those? Demolition Demi derbies? Demolition derby, That's yeah. what it was, yeah. wasn't it? A demolition derby. Cage match. So there will, be, there will be four of them Correct. at this point. Correct. Uh, Senator Sanders... I mean, uh, uh, Senator Warren last night, I listened to her on television for a while. It sounded like she was making a big concession speech. I was waiting for her to say, and therefore I'm withdrawing, and she never said it. She talked about, you know, she told stories about growing up in her house and when they were poor and the car was mm -hmm. repossessed and her mother would hug her goodnight and go outside her bedroom and start to cry. And it, went, it was a very touching and moving story that motivated her to her public mm -hmm. service that I take very seriously, and I... I was genuinely moved by it, and I understand how people are attracted mm -hmm. and why she would attract votes. Very articulate, uh, and, and, and uh, senator, uh, United States senator, um, it, but it doesn't look like she has a path anymore to yeah, that sadly nomination. For her, didn't even win her own home state of Massachusetts. She didn't win her home state. Um, so where does where does this go? We're out of time already, Dan. Where I, does this? I go? think certainly for her, it, it, the next debate will be interesting because it'll be the first to see. 
I think really Bernie and Biden go at it and whether how Warren approaches that is interesting to see. Uh, but I think her best approach at this point is to either, uh, you know, consider if she wants to be the, the kingmaker in terms of delegates, if there's a contested convention, just stay in this and, and get what delegates she can and see if she's the vice president or economic She's been czar. supportive of Bernie, sort of. So this is the challenge. Her policies align with Bernie, but her temperament and vision align with Biden. Uh, and what what would her, uh, you know, uh, Darwinian political instincts, because I always go there in Washington, what, what does her survival, best survival, best thing for Liz look like? Well, if she looks at it, the best chance for her is to ensure that there's a candidate that ensures that there's strong down ballot support in the Senate and House, because any of the policies that she's for you want a Democratic Congress. So and she's got to support Biden if I that's think in what the end, If wants. you look at those numbers and where uh, vulnerable Democrats really suffer if Bernie's at the top of the ticket. We're going to have a big talk next week, Dan, about what who the ideal vice presidential candidate will be for Joe Biden. That's going to be huge. This is going to be his Sarah Palin decision. We hope he does a better job of it than Senator McCain did some years ago. And finally, and I know we're out of time, I'm sorry, Harry, but uh, in China, mm -hmm. uh, we are getting reports from China that things are starting up again, and yet the air quality index is not changing, and the satellite heat photos do mm -hmm. not show that factories are reopening and the ships aren't moving. Mm -hmm. What do we need to hear from China? What are you hearing from China? Uh, and we've got to do this quickly, Dan. I, I really want to see Xi Jinping go to Wuhan. That's when I know this crisis is over. Okay. Uh, and until then? Until then, uh, look at the numbers. That, that heat data is interesting. We're not seeing workers go back to their factories. You know, usually after the holidays, 80% return, you'd say. Now we're getting maybe 40 or 50% returning. Uh, those are the numbers we're going to have to track. But I think the, the situation in China is, one, uh, Xi Jinping visiting Wuhan. That's the sign that it's over. Two, do we avoid any further outbreaks as things reopen? It's like a forest fire. You start to turn over earth that looks calm, Right, but it could hot. boomerang, couldn't Correct. it? Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and our senior political analyst here on the Farcast. When we come back, Dr. Jay Bryson, chief economist from Wells Fargo, is going to talk about how he was so prescient in calling a significant rate cut for the Federal Reserve and what else he expects for the year only on the Farcast when we come back. Thank you for joining us this week on the Farcast. If you would be interested in Michael Farr delivering a presentation at your upcoming event or seminar, we are booking now for 2020, and I'd be happy to work with you on potential dates. Please contact me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com, or give me a call at 202-530-5608. You can watch Michael's recent presentation at the University of Delaware's annual Economic Forecast on Facebook. Go to the Lerner College Facebook page, that's L-E-R-N-E-R, -E and scroll down to Videos. Michael's presentation begins at about the 45-minute mark. And now, back to Michael Farr and the Farcast. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. Terrific forecast this week, and I think probably perhaps our best ever. Jim Murio from the floor of the Chicago Exchange explaining what he's seeing in terms of volatility markets, the interest rate yield curve, and what that might mean uh, for investors, and the prospect of a recession. Dan Mahaffey talking to us about the Super Tuesday returns, the big shift for Lazarus Joe Biden as he uh, rebounds and becomes very, very viable and probably was a very bad day for the president on several levels. President Trump facing that 50 basis point cut that led to a 750 point drop in stocks and uh, a 10-year treasury that went below 1%. The president called for additional cuts. 
he's got a tougher road now uh, to those electoral college votes, according to uh, Dan Mahaffey. But now, ladies and gentlemen, a Farcast fan favorite and a great old friend of mine, Dr. Jay Bryson is a managing director uh, at Wells Fargo Securities. He is the acting chief economist and has been since August of 2018. He was the chief global economist uh, for 20 years almost prior uh, to that. He was with the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. when I first met him. Of course, Dr. Uh, Bryson has degrees in economics, his B.A. and his Ph.D. from the University of North Carolina and Chapel Hill. Hey, welcome back to the forecast, Jay. Michael, always a pleasure to, to be on. Well, it's great to have you. And by the way, I don't know, uh, and I'm going to just say that, I don't know what in the hell is wrong with those people at Wells Fargo that you are still acting chief economist. Uh, but I'm going to suggest that after your report at the end of last week, suggesting that the Fed would cut 100 basis points in 2020 when everybody else rolled their eyes, Four days later, the Fed cuts 50 basis points, and Bryson looks like a genius, and you were the only guy out there doing it. Hey, Wells Fargo, wake up. Make this guy your chief <laughs> economist. Give him a big raise before somebody steals him. Jamie Dimon's going to steal him, Wells. Pay attention. Uh, sorry, Jay. Well, Michael, if you, if you want to send a, uh, an email to uh, the, the powers that be at Wells Fargo, please do so. Uh, let me tell you something. I think I'm just going to send a text to Jamie Dimon. I do have his cell phone number. <laughs> that would be that, He'll pay more attention to that one than anything. Hey, did you see that Jay Bryson nailed this? I'll, I'll do that. I, I'll do that one. Take that, Wells Fargo. Uh, Wells Fargo, terrific, terrific organization. We love Wells Fargo. I'm giving him a hard time. Jay, tell us what you uh, make of the rate cut of the coronavirus and of sub-1% 10-year U.S. Treasury notes. Well, so let's start with the, uh, you know, the, the rate cut and all. You know, in some sense, monetary policy is, is uh, ill-suited to, to, uh, to, to respond to this crisis here. I mean, are lower interest rates in the United States going to open factories um, in China? No, right? But, you know, there are some things that lower interest rates uh, do do in, in this case, okay? For, so for one is uh, there's been, over the last few weeks, a big tightening in financial markets. And, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, everyone knows what's happened to the stock market. And so, you know, uh, the cost of capital for businesses has gone up as stock prices have, have, have come down. Uh, another thing that's happening, and it's not as visible to, to many people, but that is if you look at uh, spreads of corporate bonds over U.S. treasuries, that has widened significantly. And again, what that, what that, that shows is that borrowing cost for many businesses has gone up. You know, if these businesses want to go out and issue corporate bonds right now, they're going to be doing so at higher interest rates. And so the Fed rate cuts does help here because many businesses, not only do they issue corporate bonds, but they also take out bank loans that tend to be tied to a short-term interest rate. And as the, as the Fed has cut... Yeah, I see. So keep don't no, keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry, I'm, I'm just okay. telling you I understand, which you can't always count on, you know. Uh, okay, okay. Um, and and so uh, what has happened now is is about the, the Fed cutting rates. Those short-term rates that businesses will see from banks should also drift lower. So that offsets some of that tightening or some of that uh, uh, bar the borrowing costs and, and the corporate bonds going up. I mean, another thing that's happened is more on the household side. And, you know, what we've seen here is a tremendous rally um, at, at the long end of, of the U.S. yield curve. And what that has done, it's brought mortgage rates down. And so what, what that's really good because what we've seen now recently is a spike in refinancings. And so, you know, people will be able to save money on their mortgage, and that will free up some money that they can go out and spend on other goods and services in the economy. So, you know, in summation, you know, what you really want is, is for the factories in China open, to open up. Interest rates really, lower interest rates won't do much there, but it, there are some offsets that lower interest rates can provide here in the U.S. economy. Does this move, Jay, below 1% on a 10-year Treasury uh, does that indicate uh, to you uh, an increased uh, probability of recession in the U.S.? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. Many people look at, you know, the spread between the, the slope of the yield curve, like the spread between, right. say, the two-year rate and the 10-year. That's still positive. That, that, that has not gone into negative territory. So we but, haven't you know, had an I, inversion is what you mean there. We had the yield curve. That's correct. That's okay. correct. We, right. right. We haven't had an inversion there, which many people, you know, kind of look at. You know, everything I know right now, I would tell you, Michael, that, yes, has the probability of recession gone up? Yes. Um, it has gone up uh, in, in the sense of if these factory close, closings in China causes the supply chain here in the United States to lock up, then you could potentially be looking at factories starting to shut down, at least temporarily, um, here in the United States. Now, recession is not our base case scenario, uh, but I would say, you know, again, the probability has gone up. And, you know, and what we're dealing with here is just a lot of uncertainty about how this outbreak is going to spread, particularly here in, in, in the United States. And so, you know, in that uncertain that with that uncertainty, that you know, obviously the probability of a, of a downturn tier has has gone up somewhat. So, as as you look uh, from the investment side uh, of the world, and you think about uh, coronavirus and what's going on, uh, you know, I got a I, I got a, a photo yesterday from a client who was leaving Frankfurt, Germany, on a seven seventy seven. Uh, wide body back to JFK, there were 15 people on the plane. So we're seeing conferences around the country get canceled. We know that tourism, business travel, all of this seems to be restricted. Uh, and we're, you know, so without the morbidity or mortality sort of numbers even coming into play, we're seeing this cocooning effect uh, in, in the U.S. How long can that last? And what does this market volatility mean to you? Well, how long can it last? I mean, that's that's a very good question, and, I, and, and you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think it really depends on you know whether the, we get a handle on you know the the mild outbreak we've had here. Um, you know, if we're talking two weeks from now, the number of cases in the United States plateaus, then I think you're looking at just a very very short term disruption. But if this thing, you know, if we're, if you and I are having this conversation in July, and you know, we we still see out outbreaks here and people, you know, hunkering down, I mean, clearly it, it could last for some, for some time. Um, and, and, you know, and that is a, that's a hit to the, due to the economy, much like probably what happened after September 11th. Right? You know, if you remember back then, people weren't flying on airplanes, hotels, uh, their, their bookings went way down. And so it will Im negatively impact different parts of, of the economy. And, you know, our expectation is growth in the second quarter will be, you know, pretty weak, for, you know, maybe a 1% handle or something like that. You know, of course, knowing what we know right now. And if you're looking at those sorts of numbers, you know, very weak GDP growth, you know, that's a reason for the Fed to be cutting rates. And it's a, it's a reason why we expect them to, to cut even further uh, from here. What do you what is that? What sort of operating environment does this uh, allow for banks? Uh, I mean, with rates this low, how do banks make money and what do investors what should investors think about holding bank stocks? Well, I mean, in terms of how so how do banks make money in this you know in this environment? You know what I you know what I we said just a few minutes ago is I mean we have seen a you know a spike in refinancings. So banks that are active in that market will will see fees go up there. That's good. You know the other thing that we kind of touched on just you know before as well is the slope of the yield curve is still positive. Banks borrow. Uh, at the short end of the curve, um, and so with the Fed cutting rates, you'll, you'll, you will see deposit rates go down that consumers uh, get from banks. Um, so you know banks borrow at the short end of the curve, and they typically lend at the long end of the curve, and that is still is a, is a positive slope um, right there. So there is still an ability, uh, you know, for banks to be making money um, in this environment now. If we go into a recession, um, you know, banks typically get beat up uh, there because you start to see, you know, loans uh, start to go into default and, and uh, you know, those sorts and, and loan volumes go down as well. Um, but, you know, if we don't go into recession, you know, banks will you know, eventually start to turn around um, in terms of their, their profitability. Okay. So uh, as you look forward here, 
Uh, and you saw last night that uh, Joe Biden had a very good night, rather unexpected. How do politics play in and figure into your economic outlook for the rest of the year or the next couple of years? Well, to, to be frank with you, uh, we don't have any we don't make any political assumptions in our forecast just because uh, it's just so unknown. Right. I mean, so if, if I said to you, Michael, tell me who you think the president of the United States will be a, a year from now. You know, you could answer whoever you think it's going to be. My follow up question then to you would be, OK, now, equally as important, tell me what the congressional makeup Yes. Uh, is at yes. that point, right? So if we have a year from now, if we still have divided government, that will really limit whoever the president is uh, a year from now, his or her ability to to legislate and, and to make dramatic changes here. So the way we typically handle elections is in our forecast is we wait until we see what the election results are, and then we make changes to our forecast if we think, deem that that's necessary. So again, our forecast at this point is not predicated on any um, political sort of assumptions. Your report last week out of Wells Fargo suggested a 100 basis point cut to Fed funds rates uh, this year. You uh, were prescient. Uh, you're half the way there. Do you still expect another 50 basis point cut to Fed fund rates? If that happens, what does that do to the 10-year Treasury? Uh, is the Fed doing the right thing here? Uh, in, in the in the economy, and are they seeing something more dire than the rest of us? So, so um, how much do we expect from here? We expect fifty more basis points. Um, I would I would say to you would be the timing of that and how it's delivered is, is kind of uncertain at this point. You know why? Uh, why do you expect a, that? If we don't, if money's not cheap enough. There's not enough liquidity. Why do you expect it? Well, because I do believe, as I mentioned before, that, that you will see slower growth in the second quarter. And as that data comes in, I think the Fed will be reacting to that. The second thing is, if the Fed's going to make a mistake, a policy mistake at this point, they're going to overstimulate the economy rather than understimulate the economy. The Fed does not care about inflation right now. Um, you know, what the Fed is trying to do is keeping the economy from going into recession. And if if it turns out we don't need, uh, um, you know, 50 basis points or 100 basis points of, of rate cuts, if the economy kind of sails through the next few months here unscathed, and we're talking at the end of the year, we're looking at 3 4% GDP growth, well, the Fed can just raise interest rates later on. They can take it back. Um, and, and, yeah, maybe you have a little bit higher inflation next year, but, you know, the inflation rate in this country goes from 1.5% to 3%. So what? Right? I mean, this is not 1979. Um, and so what they're trying to do right now is they're trying to get out in front of any sort of um, slowdown before that slowdown then morphs into a potential downturn. The, the, so, yes, I do believe the Fed's doing the right thing at this point by cutting rates, and I would, again, expect them to be cutting rates even further as we go forward. Okay, but the criticism that I'm, that I'm hearing about this is, look, you're taking and lowering rates, and there's lowering rates doesn't fix, you know, doesn't open the factories in China. If they lower rates another 50 basis points and we do indeed go into recession because this particular tool, screwdriver, doesn't turn that particular type of screw, uh, then they don't have any dry powder. Then what do they do? Uh, what, what, what are they able to do uh, if we do go into recession? So if we do go into recession, the first thing that will happen is, you know, the Fed will cut rates all the way back to zero um, at that point. And then you would look for a, um, a restart of the Fed's quantitative easing program. I'm not saying that that is a silver bullet. Um, it helps on the margin, uh, but it's not a silver bullet. At that, at, at that point, there is a real um, need uh, for fiscal policy stimulus. Okay, and you know, right now the U.S. Treasury, if the U.S. Treasury came out and issued 10-year paper today, 
there was an auction today, the, 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 the U.S. Treasury would be able to issue that paper at 1% right. uh, for 10 years, right? right? And, um, uh, and so uh, if we do go into recession in the near term, I think some people in Washington will get the memo at that point, and you, there, there you will see you for later this year a potential, you know, some sort of stimulus program, whether it comes on the tax side, whether it comes on the spending side, don't know. Uh, but that, but you would have to turn to fiscal policy at that point. We're also hearing a rumor on the, the Hill. I was out with lobbyists last night, uh, which is always dangerous, as you know, uh, that the White House is actually dis is, is discussing a payroll tax holiday uh, if things go down as another way to add stimulus. So we're, we're, we're trying to listen and watch all of this stuff. Well, no, I was going to say that that certainly is a potential, um, you know, tool that they could use would be a payroll tax holiday because, you know, the thing with payroll tax, it tends to be kind of regressive. Yes. Um, and by that, you know, up until I can't remember what the threshold is, it's over $100,000, right? But after $100,000, you don't pay, you know, you're no longer paying the, the payroll tax. And so that money would show up, uh, it would be have the biggest impact with uh, people who are below that threshold, lower income sort of people, and they tend to go out, if they have the extra money, they tend to go out and spend it. And so that potentially could be a, uh, you know, something that would be very stimulative to the economy. Jay, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Jay Bryson is the managing director and soon-to-be chief economist for Wells Fargo Securities after I make a few calls. Jay, this was hugely helpful on behalf of all of our listeners. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another forecast. We will be back next week uh, if anything happens, of course, uh, to talk about, whether it's in Washington, Wall Street, or around the world. We'll bring you up to date with the best insights from the best experts available to us. Next week on the forecast, please join us in Washington, D.C. I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on this week's forecast, and a special thanks to Michael's guest, Jim Urio, Dan Mahaffey, and Chief Economist from Wells Fargo Investments, Dr. Jay Bryson. The forecast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. Please subscribe and share with a friend. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at forecast at farmiller.com. Let us know your thoughts on the show, questions you may have, and what you'd like to hear as we continue Season 3. We would like to remind you that the Farcast Podcast is for informational purposes only and it should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any index, fund, manager, or strategy. And before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. And in these times of turmoil especially, if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com, and I'll be happy to put you in touch with one of our investment professionals. Every week, go beyond the headlines with the forecast. Wall Street, Washington and the world.